At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Section 14 of The Golden Bell, Part 1, The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 18. The Succession to the Kingdom in Ancient Latium. Part 1. The Vestal Fire and the Great Priesthoods appear to have been institutions common to the whole Latin race. Thus it appears that a variety of considerations combined to uphold if not to originate the custom of maintaining a perpetual fire. The sanctity of the wood which fed it, the belief in the generative virtue of the process by which it was kindled, the supposed efficacy of the fire in repelling the powers of evil, the association of the hearth with the spirits of the dead, and with the majesty or even the life of the king, all work together to invest the simple old custom with a halo of mystery and romance. If this was so at Rome, we may assume that matters were not very different in the other Latin towns which kept up a vestal fire. These two had their kings of the sacred rites, their flamens, and their pontiffs, as well as their vestal virgins. All the great priesthoods of Rome appear, in fact, to have had their doubles in other ancient cities of Latium, or were probably primitive institutions common to the whole Latin race. Priestly or divine functions of the Roman kings, including the maintenance of the Vestal Fire. Accordingly, whatever is true or probable of the Roman priesthoods, about which we know most, may reasonably be regarded as true or probable of the corresponding priesthoods elsewhere in Latium, about which, for the most part, we know nothing more than the names. Now, in regard to the Roman king, whose priestly functions were inherited by his successor, the king of the sacred rites, the foregoing discussion has led us to the following conclusions. He represented and indeed personated Jupiter, the great god of the oak, the sky, and the thunder, and in that character made rain, thunder, and lightning for the good of his subjects, like many more kings of the weather in other parts of the world. Further, he not only mimicked the oak god by wearing an oak wreath and other insignia of divinity, but he was married to an oak nymph, Egeria who appear to have been merely a local form Diana in her character of a goddess of woods, of water, and of childbirth. Moreover, he was descended from the oak, since he was born of a virgin, who conceived by contact with the fire of sacred oak wood. Hence he had to guard the ancestral fire and keep it constantly burning, inasmuch as on its maintenance depended the continuance of the royal family. But the fire was formally extinguished and rekindled on certain occasions, perhaps on the death of the king. 
only on certain stated occasions was it lawful and even necessary to extinguish the old fire in order to revive it in a pure and more vigorous form by the friction of the sacred wood this was done once a year on the first of march and we may conjecture that it was also done by the new king on his ascension to power for as we have seen it has been customary in various places to extinguish the king's fire at his death among the ancient persians the perpetual sacred fire was poured out on the death of a king and remained unlit until after his funeral it is a common practice to extinguish the fire in any house where a death has taken place apparently from a fear that the ghost may scorch or singe himself at it like a moth at the flame of a candle and the custom of putting out the king's fire at his decease may in its origin have been nothing more than this but when the fire on the king's hearth can to be viewed as bound up in a mysterious fashion with his life it would naturally be extinguished at his death not to spare his fluttering ghost the risk of pain or falling into it but because as a sort of life token or external soul it too must die at his death and be born again from a holy tree at all events it seems probable that whatever and from whatever cause it became necessary to rekindle the royal and sacred fire by the friction of wood the operation was performed jointly by the king and the vestals one or more of whom may have been his daughters or the daughters of his predecessor regarded as impersonations of mother vesta herself these processes would be the chosen vessels not only to bring to birth the seed of fire in working the fire drill but also to receive the seed of the fire god in their chest wombs and so to become the mothers of the fire begotten kings what is true of the roman kings is probably true of the latin kings in general all these conclusions which we have reached mainly by a consideration of the roman evidence may with great probability be applied to the other latin communities they too probably had of old their divine or priestly kings who transmitted their religious functions throughout their civil powers to their successors the kings of the sacred rites what was the rule of succession to the latin kingship but we have still to ask what is the rule of succession to the kingdom among the old latin tribes we possess two lists of latin kings both professedly complete one is a list of the kings of alba the other is a list of the kings of rome the list of the alban kings seems to imply that the kingship was hereditary in the male line if we accept as authentic the list of the alban kings we can only conclude that the kingdom was hereditary in the male line the son regularly succeeded his father on the throne but this list if it is not as neighbor who are held a late and clumsy fabrication has somewhat the appearance of an elastic cord which ancient historians stretched in order to link aeneas to romulus yet it would be rash to set these names wholly aside as a chronological stopgap deliberately foisted in by later analysts in early monarchies before the invention of writing tradition is remarkably retentive of the names of kings the baganda of central africa for example remember the names of more than thirty of their kings in an unbroken chain of twenty-two generations even the occurrence of foreign names among the alban kings is not of itself sufficient to condemn the list as a forgery for as i shall show presently this feature is explicitly a rule of descent which appears to have prevailed in many ancient monarchies including that of rome perhaps the most we can say for the history of the alban kings is that their names may well be genuine and that some general features of the monarchy together with a few events which happen to strike the popular imagination may have survived in the memory of the people till they found their way into written history but no dependence can be placed either on the alleged years of their reigns or on the hereditary principle which is assumed to have connected each king with his predecessor
on the other hand none of the roman kings was immediately succeeded by his son but three were succeeded by their sons-in-law who were foreigners when we come to the list of the roman kings we are on much firmer though still slippery ground according to tradition there were in all eight kings of rome with regard to the five last of them at all events we can hardly doubt that they actually sat on the throne and that the traditional history of their reigns is in its main outlines correct now it is very remarkable that though the first king of rome romulus is said to have been descended from the royal house of alba in which the kingship is represented as hereditary in the male line not one of the roman kings was immediately succeeded by his son on the throne yet several left sons or grandsons behind them on the other hand one of them was descended from a former king through his mother not through his father and three of the kings namely tadius the elder tarquin and servius tullius were succeeded by their sons-in-law who were all either foreigners or of foreign descent this suggests that the kingship was transmitted in the female line and was held by foreigners who married the royal princesses this suggests that the right to the kingship was transmitted in the female line and was actually exercised by foreigners who married the royal princesses to put it in technical language the succession to the kingship in rome and probably in latium generally would seem to have been determined by certain rules which have moulded early society in many parts of the world namely exogamy bina marriage and female kinship or mother kin exogamy is a rule which obliges a man to marry a woman of a different clan from his own bina marriage is a rule that he must leave the home of his birth and live with his wife's people and female kinship or mother kin is a system of tracing relationship and transmitting the family name through women instead of through men if these principles regulate the scent of the kingship among the ancient latins the state of things in this respect would be somewhat as follows the political and religious centre of each community would be the perpetual fire on the king's hearth tended by vestal virgins of the royal clan the king would be a man of another clan perhaps of another town or even of another race had married a daughter of his predecessor and received the kingdom with her the children whom he had by her would inherit their mother's name not his the daughters would remain at home the sons when they grew up would go away into the world marry and settle in their wives country whether as kings or commoners of the daughters who stayed at home some or all would be dedicated as vestal virgins for a longer or shorter time to the service of the fire on the hearth and one of them would in time become the consort of her father's successor this hypothesis explains some obscure features in the traditional history of the latin kings such as the stories of their miraculous birth this hypothesis has the advantage of explaining in a simple and natural way some obscure features in the traditional history of the latin kingship thus the legends which tell how latin kings were born of virgin mothers and divine fathers become at least more intelligible for a strip of their fabulous element tales of this sort may no more than that a woman has been gotten with the child by a man unknown and this uncertainty as to fatherhood is more easily compatible with the system of kinship which ignores paternity than with one which makes it all important the latin kings perhaps begotten at saturnalia if at the birth of the latin kings their fathers were really unknown the fact points either to a general looseness of life in the royal family or to a special relaxation of moral rules on certain occasions when men and women reverted for a season to the license of an earlier age such saturnalias are not uncommon at some stages of social evolution 
in our own country traces them long survived in the practices of may day and with suntide if not at christmas children born of the more or less promiscuous intercourse which characterizes festivals of this kind will naturally be fathered on the god to whom the particular festival was dedicated the roman festival of midsummer was a kind of saturnalia and was specially associated with the first-born king servius tellius in this connection it may not be without significance that a festival of agility and drunkenness was celebrated by the plebeians and slaves of rome on midsummer day and that the festival was specially associated with the fire-born king servius tullius being held in honour of fortuna the goddess who loves servius as igeria loved numa the popular merrymakings at this season included foot races and bird races the tiber was gay with flower-wreathed boats in which young folks sat quaffing wine the festival appears to have been a sort of midsummer saturnalia answering to the real saturnalia which fell at midwinter in modern europe as we shall see later on the great midsummer festival has been above all a festival of lovers at a fire one of its principal features is the pairing of sweethearts who leap over the bonfire hand in hand or throw flowers across the flames to each other and many omens of love and marriage are drawn from the flowers which bloom at this mystic season it is a time of the rose and of love yet the innocence and beauty of such festivals in modern times ought not to build us to the likelihood that in earlier days they were marked by coarser features and were probably of the essence of the rites indeed among the ruined as thirty and peasantry these features seem to have lingered down to our own generations if not to the present day one other feature in the roman celebration of midsummer deserves to be especially noticed the custom of rowing in flower deck boats on the river on this day proves that it was to some extent a water festival and as we shall learn later on water is always down to modern times played a conspicuous part of the rites of midsummer day which explains why the church in throwing its cloak over the old heathen festival chose to dedicate to st john the baptist but the uncertainty as to the paternity of the roman kings may only mean that in later times the names of their fathers were forgotten the hypothesis that the latin kings may have been begotten at an annual festival of love is necessarily a mere conjecture though the traditional birth of numa on the festival or the parilia when shepherds leaped across the spring bonfires as lovers leap across the midsummer fires may perhaps be thought to lend it a faint colour of probability but it is quite possible that the uncertainty as to their fathers may not have arisen till long after the death of the kings when their figures began to melt away into the cloudland of fable assuming fantastic shapes and gorgeous colouring as they passed from earth to heaven if they were all alien immigrants strangers and pilgrims in the land they ruled over it would be natural enough that the people should forget their lineage and forgetting it should provide them with another which made up in lustre what it lacked in truth the final apotheosis which represented the kings as not merely sprung from gods but as themselves deities incarnate will be much facilitated in their lifetime as we have reason to think they have actually laid claim to divinity where descent is traced through women only girls of the highest rank may be married to men of humble birth even to aliens and slaves if among the Latins the women of royal blood always stayed at home and received as their consorts men of another stock and often of another country who reigned as kings in virtue of their marriage with a native princess we can understand not only why foreigners wore the crown of rome but also why foreign names occur in the list 
of the island kings. In a state of society where nobility is reckoned only through women, in other words, where descent through the mother is everything, and descent from the father is nothing, no objection will be felt to uniting girls of the highest rank to men of humble birth, even aliens or slaves, provided that in themselves the men appear to be suitable mates. What really matters is that the royal stock, which the prosperity in existence of the people is supposed to bend, should be perpetuated in a vigorous and efficient form, and for this purpose it is necessary that the women of the royal family should bear children to men who are physically and mentally fit, according to the standard of early society, to discharge the important duty of procreation. Thus the personal qualities of the kings at this stage of social evolution are deemed of vital importance. If they, like their consorts, are of royal and divine descent, so much the better, but it is not essential that they should be so. In Ashanti, where the kingdom descends through women, the rank of the king's father is not regarded. The hypothesis which we have been led to frame of the rule of succession to the Latin kingship will be confirmed by analogy, for we can show that elsewhere, under a system of female kinship, the paternity of the kings is a matter of indifference. Nay, that men who are born slaves may, like Servius Tullius, marry royal princesses and be raised to the throne. Now this is true of the Xi-speaking peoples of the Gold Coast and West Africa. Thus in Ashanti, where the kindred descends in the female line of the king's brothers, and afterwards to the sons of his sister, in preference to his own sons, the sisters of the reigning monarch, are free to marry or intrigue with whom they please, provide only that their husband or lover be a very strong and handsome man, in order that the kings whom he begets may be men of finer presence than their subjects. It matters not how low may be the rank and position of the king's father. If the king's sisters, however, have no sons, the throne will pass to the king's own son, and failing a son, to the chief vassal or the chief slave. But in the Fanti country, the principal slave succeeds to the exclusion of the son. So little regard is paid by these people to the lineage, especially the paternal lineage, of their kings. Yet Ashanti has attained a barbaric civilization as high, perhaps, as that of any Negro state and probably not at all inferior to that of the petty Latin kingdoms at the dawn of history. Traces of a similar state of things in Uganda A trace of a similar state of things appears to survive in Uganda, another great African monarchy. From there the Queen Dowager and the Queen's sister are, or were, allowed to have as many husbands as they choose, without going through any marriage ceremony. Of these two women it is commonly said all Uganda is their husband, they appear to be fond of change, only living with a man for a few days and then inviting someone else to take his place. We reminded the legends of the lustful queen Semiramis, and the likeness may be more than superficial. Yet these women are not allowed, under pain of death, to bear children, hence they practice abortion. Both the license and prohibition may be explained if we suppose that formerly the kingdom descended, as it still does in Ashanti, first to the king's brothers and next to the sons of his sisters. For in the case, the next highest to the throne would be the sons of the king's mother and of his sisters, and these women might accordingly be allowed, as the king's sisters still are allowed in Ashante, to mate with any handsome man who took their fancy, in order that their offspring might be of regal port. But when the line of descent was changed from the female to the male line, in other words, when the kings were succeeded by their sons instead of by their brothers or their sisters' sons, then the king's mother and his sisters would be forbidden to bear children, this the descent of the crown to the king's own children should be endangered by the existence of rivals, who, according to the old law of the kingdom, 
had a better right to the throne. We may surmise that the practice of putting the king's brothers to death at the beginning of his reign will survive till Uganda passed under English protection. It was instituted at the same time as a prohibition of childbearing laid on the king's mother and sisters. The one custom got rid of existing rivals, the other prevented them from being born. That the kingship in Uganda was formally transmitted in the female line is strongly indicated by the rule that the kings and the rest of the royal family take their totems from their mothers, whereas all the other people of the country get their totems from their fathers. In Luango also, where the blood royal is traced in the female line, the princesses are free to cohabit with whom they please, and their consorts are practically their slaves. In Luango, the blood royal is traced in the female line, and here also the princesses are free to choose and divorce their husbands at pleasure, and to cohabit at the same time with other men. These husbands are nearly always plebeians, for princes and princesses, who are very numerous and form a ruling caste in the country, may not marry each other. The lot of a prince consort is not a happy one, for he is rather the slave and prisoner than the mate of his imperious princess. In marrying her, he engages never more to look at a woman during the whole time he cohabits with his royal spouse. When he goes out, he is preceded by guards who drive away all females from the road where he is to pass. If in spite of these precautions, he should by ill luck cast his eyes on a woman, the princess may have his head chopped off, and calmly exercises or used to exercise the right. This sort of libertinism, sustained by power, often carries the princesses to the great successes, and nothing is so much dreaded as their anger. No wonder that commoners in general avoid the honour of a royal alliance. Only poor and embarrassed men seek it as a protection against their creditors and enemies. All the children of such a man by such a wife are princes and princesses, and a one of the princes may in time be chosen king. For in Leongo, the crown is not hereditary, but elective. Thus would seem that the father of the king of Loango is nearly always a plebeian, and often little better than a slave. Similar rights enjoyed by queens in Central Africa. Near the Chambezi River, which falls into Lake Benguelo in Central Africa, there is a small state governed by a queen who belongs to the reigning family of Umbimba. She bears the title of Manfumer, or Mother of Kings. The privileges attached to this dignity are numerous. The most singular is that the queens may choose for themselves their husband among the common people. The chosen man becomes prince consort without sharing in the administration of affairs. He is bound to leave everything to follow his royal and often but little accommodating spouse. To show that in these households the rights are inverted and that a man may be changed into a woman, the queen takes the title of monsieur and her husband that of madame. Traces of female descent of the kingship in ancient Greece at Athens, as at Rome, we find traces of succession to the throne by marriage with a royal princess, for two of the most ancient kings of Athens, namely Cecrops and Amphictyon, are said to have married the daughters of their predecessors. This tradition is confirmed by the evidence, which I shall adduce presently, that at Athens male kinship was preceded by female kinship. With this royal descent of the kingship, males rule over different kingdoms in successive generations. Further, if I am right in supposing that in ancient Latium the royal families kept their daughters at home and sent forth their sons to marry princesses and reign among their wives' people, it will follow that the male descendants would reign in successive generations over different kingdoms. Now this seems to have happened both in ancient Greece and in ancient Sweden, 
from which we may legitimately infer that it was a custom practised by more than one branch of the Aryan stock in Europe. Take, for instance, the great house of Vegas, the grandfather of Achilles and Ajax. Migrations of the male descendants of Aeacus. Aeacus himself reigned in Aegina, but his descendants, as have been justly observed, from the beginning went forth to other lands. His son Telamon migrated to the island of Salamis, married the king's daughter, and reigned over the country. Telamon's son Teucer, in his turn, migrated to Cyprus, wedded the king's daughter, and succeeded his father-in-law in the throne. Again, Peleus, another son of Aeacus, quitted his native land and went away to Phythia in Thessaly, where he received the hand of the king's daughter, and with her a third of the kingdom. Of Achilles, the son of Peleus, we are told that in his youth he was sent to the court of Lycomedes, king of Scyros, where he got one of the princesses with a child. The traditions seem to show that Achilles followed the custom of his family in seeking his fortune in a foreign land. His son, Neoptolemus, after him, went away to Pyrrhus, where he settled and the ancestors of the kings of the country. Migrations of the male descendants of Tydeus and Pelops Again Tydeus was a son of Oenus, the king of Caledon and Aetolia, but he went to Aragos and married the king's daughter. His son, Diomede, migrated to Dionea in Italy, where he helped the king in a war with his enemies, receiving as his reward the king's daughter in marriage and part of the kingdom. As another example, we may take the family of the Pelopidae, whose tragic fortunes the Greek poets never wearied of celebrating. Their ancestor was Tantalus, king of Sipilus in Asia Minor. But his son Pelops passed into Greece, won Hippodamia, the daughter of the king of Pisa, in the famous chariot race, and succeeded his father-in-law on the throne. His son Atreus did not remain in Pisa, but migrated to Mycenae, of which he became king. And the next generation, Menelaus, son of Atreus, went to Sparta, where he married Helen, the king's daughter, and himself reigned over the country. Further, it is very notable that according to the old lyric poets, Agamemnon himself, the older brother of Menelaus, reigned not at Mycenae, but in Lacedaemon, the native land of his wife Clytemestra, and that he was buried at Amclae, the ancient capital of the country. These migrations not understood in later times. Various reasons are assigned by ancient Greek writers for these migrations of the princes. A common one is that the king's son had been banished for murder. This would explain very well why he fled his own land, but it is no reason at all why he should become king of another. We may suspect that such reasons are afterthoughts devised by writers who are accustomed to the rule that a son should succeed to his father's property and kingdom, were hard put to it to account for so many traditions of king's sons who quitted the land of their birth to reign over a foreign kingdom. Traces of similar migrations in Scandinavian tradition in Scandinavian tradition, we meet with traces of similar customs. For we read of daughters' husbands who received a share of the kingdoms of their royal fathers-in-law, even when these fathers-in-law had sons of their own. In particular, during the five generations which preceded Harold, the fair-haired male members of the Lingar family, which is said to have come from Sweden, are reported in Heimskringla, or Sagas of the Norwegian kings, to have obtained at least six provinces in Norway by marriage with the daughters of the local kings. A reminiscence of the transmission of the kingship through women is preserved in popular tales. 
thus it would seem that among sumerian peoples at a certain stage of their social evolution it has been customary to regard women and not men as the channels in which royal blood flows and to bestow the kingdom in each successive generation on a man of another family and often of another country who marries one of the princesses and reigns over his wife's people common type of popular tale which relates how an adventurer coming to a strange land wins the hand of the king's daughter and with her the half of the whole of the kingdom may well be a reminiscence of a real custom where such customs prevail the kingship is an appanage of marriage with a princess where usages and ideas of this sort prevail it is obvious that the kingship is merely an appanage of marriage with a woman of the blood royal the old danish historian saxo grammaticus puts this view of the kinship very clearly in the mouth of hermit a legendary queen of scotland and her statement is all the more significant because as we shall see presently it reflects the actual practice of the pictish kings indeed she was a queen says hermit and but that her sex gainsaid it might be deemed a king nay and this is yet truer whomsoever she thought worthy of her bed was at once a king and she yielded her kingdom with herself thus her sceptre and her hand went together wherever a custom of this sort is observed a man may clearly acquire the kingdom just as well by marrying the widow as the daughter of his predecessor this is what agistheus did in Marseille, and what hamlet's uncle feng and hamlet's successor wiglet did in denmark all three slew their predecessors married their widows and then sat peacefully on the throne the tame submission of the people to their rule would be intelligible if they regarded the assassins in spite of their crime as the lawful occupants of the throne by reason of their marriage to the widowed queens the lydian kingship apparently transmitted through women similarly gages murdered Canduels, king of lydia married his queen and reigned over the country nor was this the only instance of such a succession in the history of lydia the wife of king cades conspired against his life with her paramount spermus and though her husband recovered from the dose of poison which she administered to him he died soon afterwards and the adulterer married his lemon and succeeded to the throne these cases excite a suspicion that in the royal house of lydia descent was traced in the female line and the suspicion is strengthened by the legendary character of omphale the ancestress of the dynasty for she is represented as a masculine but dissolute queen of the semiramis type who wore male attire and put all her favoured lovers to death on the other hand her consort hercules was her purchased slave was treated with indignity and went about dressed as a woman this plainly implies that the queen was a far more powerful and important personage than the king as would naturally happen wherever it is the man who confers royalty on the consort of marriage instead of seeing it from him the story that she prostituted the daughters of the lydians to their male slaves is of a piece with addition that she herself married her slave hercules it may mean little more than that the lydians were indifferent to paternity and that the children of free wound by slaves ranked as free such an indifference to fatherhood coupled with the ancient accounts of the loose morals of lydian girls who were accustomed to earn a dowry by prostitution is a mark of the system of female kinship hence we may conjecture that herodotus was wrong in saying that from hercules to candles the crown of lydia had descended for twenty-two generations from father to son the old mode of transmitting the crown of lydia through women probably did not end with candles at least we are told that his murderer and successor gyges like hercules the mythical founder of the dynasty gave himself and his kingdom into the hands of the woman he loved 
and when she died he collected all the slaves from the country round about and raised in her memory a mound so lofty that it could be seen from every part of lydian plain and for centuries after was known as the harlot's tomb marriage of canute with the widow of his predecessor when canute the dane had been acknowledged king of england he married emma the widow of his predecessor ethelred whose throne he had overturned and whose children he had driven into exile the marriage is not unnaturally puzzled the historians for emma was much older than her second husband and she was living in normandy and it is very doubtful whether canute had ever seen her before she became his bride all however becomes plain if as the case of fang and wiglet seemed to show it was an old danish custom that marriage with the king's widow carried the king with it as a matter of right in that case young but prudent canute married the mature widow merely out of policy in order to clinch according to danish notions by a legal measure his claim to that crown which he had already won for himself by the sword among the saxons and their near kinsmen the farini it appears to have been a regular custom for the new king to marry his stepmother thus hermegilskus king of the farini on his deathbed enjoined his son radigus to wed his stepmother in accordance with their ancestral practice and his injunction was obeyed ebold king of kent married his stepmother after the death of his father ethelbert and as late as the ninth century ethelbert king of the west saxons wedded judith the widow of his father ethelwulf such marriages are intelligible if we suppose that old saxon as well as old danish law gave the kingdom to him who married the late king's widow traces of the system of female kingship among the Aryans. To the view that the right of the Latin kingship was derived from women and not from men, it may be objected that the system of female kinship or mother kin is unknown among the Aryans, and that even if faint traces of it may be met with elsewhere, the last piece in the world where we should look for it would be Rome, the stronghold of the patriarchal family. To make this objection, it is necessary to point to some facts which appear to be undoubted survivals among Aryan peoples of a custom of tracing descent through the mother only female kinship among the athenians the epizephrian locrians the cantabrians and the germans in attica tradition ran that of old the women were the common property of the men who coupled with them like beasts so that while every one knew his mother nobody knew who his father was this system of sexual communism was abolished by Cecrops, the first king of athens who introduced individual marriage in its place little weight could be attached to this tradition if it were not supported to a certain extent by the attic usage which always allowed a man to marry his half-sister by the same father but not his half-sister by the same mother such a rule seems clearly to be a relic of a time when kinship was counted only through women again epizifrian locrians in italy traced all ancestral distinction in the female not the male line among them the nobles were the members of the hundred houses from whom were chosen by lot the maidens to be sent to troy for an order it is said to expiate the sacrilege committed by locrian ajax when he violated cassandra in the sanctuary of athena at troy the cities of locris used only to send to the trojan goddess two maidens whom the trojans slew and burning their bodies on the wood of certain trees which bore no fruit threw the ashes into the sea if the maidens contrived to escape they took refuge in the sanctuary of athena which they thenceforth swept and washed over never quitting it except at night and always going barefoot shorn and clad in a single garment the custom is said to have been observed for a thousand years down to the fourth century before our era 
among the Locrians, as elsewhere, the system of female kinship would seem to have gone hand in hand with dissolute morals. For there is reason to think that of old the Locrians, both the Lydians and Armenians, had been wont to prostitute their daughters before marriage, though in latter times the custom fell into abeyance. The Cantabrians of Spain seem also to have had mother kin, for among them it was the daughters who inherited property and who portioned out their brothers in marriage. Again, the ancient Germans deemed the tie between a man and his sister's children as close as that between a father and his children. Indeed, some regarded the bond as even closer and more sacred, and therefore, in exacting hostages, they chose the children of a man's sister rather than his own children, believing that this gave them a firmer hold on the family. The superiority thus assigned to the maternal uncle over the father is an infallible mark of mother kin, either present or past, as may be observed, for instance, in very many African tribes to this day, among whom both property and political power pass, not from father to son, but from an eternal uncle to his nephews. Similarly, in Melanesia, the close relation of the mother's brother to his nephew is maintained even when the system of relationship has become patriarchal. Amongst the Germans, in the time of Tacitus, it is true, a man's heirs were his own children, but the mother's brother could never have attained the position he held except under a system of eternal descent. Another vestige of mother kin among the Teutonic people appears to be found in the Salic law, for it was a custom with the Salian Franks that when a widow married again, a price had to be paid to her family, and laying down the order in which her kinsmen were entitled to receive this payment. The law gave a decided preference to the female over the male line. Thus the first person entitled to claim the money was the eldest son of the widow's sister. Among the Picts, the kinship was transmitted through women. It is a moot point whether the Picts of Scotland belonged to the Aryan family or not, but among them the kingdom was certainly transmitted through women. Bede tells us that down to his own time, in the early part of the 8th century, Whenever a doubt arose as to the succession, the Picts chose their king from the female rather than the male line. The statement is amply confirmed by historical evidence. We possess a list of the Pictish kings and their fathers, which was drawn up in the reign of Sinead, king of the Scots, towards the end of the 10th century, and from the period from the year 583 to the year 840. The register is authenticated by the Irish annals of Tegernach and Ulster. Now it is significant that in this list the fathers of the kings are never themselves kings. In other words, no king was succeeded on the throne by his son. Further, if we may judge by their names, the fathers of the Pictish kings were not Picts but foreigners, men of Irish, Cymric, or English race. The inference from these facts seems to be that among the Picts, the royal family was exogamous, and that the crown descended in the female line. In other words, that the princesses married men of another clan, or even of another race, and that their issue by these strangers set on the throne, whether they succeeded in prescribing order according to birth, or whether they were elected from among the sons of princesses, as the words of Bede might be taken to imply. Female Kinship Among the Etruscans Another European, though apparently not Aryan, people, among whom the system of female kinship appears to have prevailed, were the Etruscans. For the Etruscan sepulchral inscriptions, the name of the mother of the deceased is regularly recorded along with, or even without the name of the father, and where the names of both father and mother are mentioned, greater prominence is given to the mother's name by writing it in full, whereas the father's name is, in accordance with Roman usage, 
merely indicated by an initial. The statement of Theopompus that among the Etruscans sexual communism was a recognized practice and that maternity was unknown may be only an exaggerated way of saying that they traced their descent through their mothers, not through their fathers. Yet apparently in Etruria, as elsewhere, this system of relationship was combined with a real indifference to fatherhood and with the dissolute morals which that indifference implies. For Etruscan girls were wont to earn a dowry by prostitution. In these customs, the Etruscans resembled the Lydians, and their similarity confirms the common opinion of antiquity, which modern historians have too lightly set aside, that the Etruscans were of Lydian origin. However that may be, in considering the vestiges of mother kin among the Latins, we shall do well to bear in mind that the same archaic mode of tracing descent appears to have prevailed among the neighbouring Etruscans, who not only exercised a powerful influence in Rome, but gave her two, if not three of her kings. Mother king may survive in the royal family after it has been exchanged for father king and all others. It would be neither unnatural nor surprising if among the ancient Latins, mother king survived in the royal family after it had been exchanged for father king and all others. For royalty, like religion, is essentially conservative. It clings to old forms and old customs which have long vanished from ordinary life. Thus in Uganda, persons of royal blood still inherit their totems from their mothers, or other people inherit them from their fathers. So in Denmark and Scandinavia, as we have seen, kingdom would appear to have been transmitted through women, long after the family name and property had become hereditary in the male line among the people. Sometimes a difference in custom between kings and commoners is probably based rather on a distinction of race than varying degrees of social progress. For a dynasty is often a family of alien origin, who have imposed their rule on their subjects by force of arms, as the Norms did on the Saxons, and the Manchus on the Chinese. Sometimes her conquering race may have left nominal kingship to members of the old royal house. More rarely, perhaps, it may have happened that from motives of policy or superstition, a conquering tribe has left a nominal kingship to the members of the old royal house. Such a concession would be most likely to be made where the functions of the king were rather religious than civil, and where the prosperity of the country was supposed to depend on the maintenance of the established relations between the people and the cause of the land. In that case, the newcomers, knowing not how to appease and conciliate these strange deities, might be glad to let the priestly kings of the conquered race perform the quaint rites and mumble the venerable spells, which had been found to answer their purpose time out of mind. This perhaps happened in Rome, where many of the kings seem to have been plebeians. In a commonwealth like the Roman, formed by the union of different stocks, the royal family might thus belong either to the conquerors or to the conquered. In other words, either to the patricians or to the plebeians. But if we leave out the account Romulus and Tatius, who are more or less legendary figures, the two Tarquins, who came of a noble Etruscan house, all the other Roman kings appeared from their names to have been men of plebeian, not patrician families. Hence it seems probable that they belonged to the indigenous race, who may have retained mother kin, at least in the royal succession, after they had submitted to invaders who knew father kin only. The abolition of the monarchy at Rome may have been a revolution whereby the patrician wrested the shadow of sovereignty from the plebeians and transferred it to themselves, who already wielded the substance. If that was so, it confirms the view that the old Roman kinship was essentially a religious office, for the conquerors 
will be much more ready to leave an office of this sort in the hands of the conquered than a kingship of the type with which we are familiar that these puppets they might think render to the gods their duties while we rule the people in peace and leave them in war of such priestly kings numa was the type and not all of his successors were willing to model themselves on his saintly figure and rejecting the pomps and vanities of earth to devote themselves to communion with heaven some were men of strong will and warlike temper who could not brook the dull routine of the cloister they longed to exchange the stillness and gloom of the temple or the sacred grove for the sunshine the dust and the tumult of the battlefield such men broke bounds and when they threatened to get completely out of hand and turn the tables on the patricians it was time that they should go this we may conjecture was a real meaning of the abolition of the kingship in rome it put an end to the solemn pretense that the state was still ruled by the ancient owners of the soil it took the shadow of power from them gave it to those who had long possessed the substance the ghost of the monarchy had begun to walk and grow troublesome the revolution laid for centuries first the intention seems to have been to leave the annual kinship or consulship to the old royal family but though the effort of the revolution was to substitute the real rule of the patricians for the normal rule of the plebeians the break with the past was at the outset less complete than it seems for the first two consuls were both men of the royal blood one of them el junius brutus was sister's son of the expelled king tarquin the proud as such he would have been the heir to the throne under a strict system of mother kin the other consul el tarquinus colatinus was a son of the late king's cousin agerius these facts suggest that the first intention of the revolutionaries was neither to abolish the kinship nor to wrest it from the royal family but merely retain the hereditary monarchy to restrict its powers to achieve this object they limited the tenure of office to a year and doubled the number of the kings who might thus be expected to check and balance each other but it is not impossible that both restrictions were merely the revival of old rules which the growing power of the kings had contrived for a time to set aside in practice the legends of romulus and remus and afterwards of romulus and tadius may be real reminiscence of a double kinship like that of sparta and in the yearly ceremony of their regifugium or flight to the king we seem to detect a trace of an annual not a lifelong tenure of office the same thing may perhaps be true of the parallel change which took place at athens when the people deprived the medontids of their regal powers and reduced them from kings to responsible magistrates who held office at first for life but afterwards for only periods of ten years here too the limitation of the tenure of their kinship may have been merely the reinforcement of old custom which had fallen into abeyance in rome however the attempt to maintain the hereditary principle it were made at all was almost immediately abandoned and the patricians openly transferred to themselves the double kingship which thenceforward was purely elective and was afterwards known as a consulship the abolition of the monarchy at rome seems to have been hastened by an attempt of the last king to shift the succession from the female to the male line the history of the last king of rome tarquin the proud leads us to suspect that the offence which he gave by his ambitious and domineering character was heightened by an attempt to shift the succession of the kingship from the female to the male line he himself united both rights in his own person for he had married the daughter of his predecessor servius tullius and he was a son or grandson of tarquin the elder who preceded servius tullius on the throne but in asserting his right to the crown if we can trust roman history on this point tarquin the proud entirely ignored his claim to it through women as the son-in-law of his predecessor and insisted only on his claim in the male line as a son or grandson of a former king 
and he evidently intended to bequeath the kingship to one of his sons for he put out of the way two of the men whose succession had been through women in the way i have indicated would have been entitled to sit on the throne before his own sons even before himself one of these was his sister's husband the other was her eldest son the youngest son the famous lucius junius brutus only escaped the fate of the father and older brother by fanning like hamlet imbecility and thus deluding his wicked uncle into belief that he had nothing to fear from such a simpleton this design of tarquin to alter the line of succession from the female to the male side of the house may have been the last drop which filled the cup of high-handed tyranny to overflowing at least it is a strange coincidence if it is nothing more that he was deposed by the man who under a system of female kinship was the rightful heir and who has since actually sat on the throne from which he pushed his uncle for the curule chair of the consul was little less than the king's throne under limited tenure the hereditary principle does not necessarily exclude the elective in the succession to a monarchy many african chieftainships or kingships are both hereditary and elective it has often been asked whether the roman monarchy was hereditary or elective the question implies an opposition between the two modes of succession which by no means necessarily exists as a matter of fact in many african tribes at the present day the succession to the kingdom of the chieftainship is determined by a combination of the hereditary and elective principle that is the kings or chiefs are chosen by the people or by a body of electors from among the members of the royal family and as the chiefs have commonly several wives and many children by them the number of possible candidates may be inconsiderable for example we are told that the government of the banyai is rather peculiar being a sort of feudal republicanism sometimes the chief is chosen from several families in rotation the chief is elected and they choose the son of the deceased chief's sister in preference to his own offspring when is satisfied with one candidate they even go to a distant tribe for a successor who is usually of the family of the late chief a brother or sister's son but never his own son or daughter when first spoken to on the subject he answers as if he thought himself unequal to the task and unworthy of the honour but having accepted it all the wives goods and children of his predecessor belong to him and he takes care to keep them in a dependent position among these people the children of the chief have fewer privileges than common free men they may not be sold but rather than choose any one of them for a chief at any future time the free men would prefer to elect one of themselves who bore only a very distant relationship to the family chiefs and kings in africa are elected from several families in rotation sometimes the field of choice is extended still further by a rule that the chief may or must be chosen from one of several families in a certain order thus among the Mangalas of the kasang valley in angola the chief is elected from three families in rotation again daigara a country bordering on senangambia is ruled by an absolute monarch who is chosen alternately from two families one of which lives in Diapina and the other in Bodumar. In the Winawemwanga tribe, to the south of Lake Tanagayaka, the first male child born to a chief after he succeeds to the chieftainship is a natural heir. But many years ago, there were two claimants to the throne, whose supporters were about equal, and to avoid a civil war, the following arrangement was made. One of them was allowed to reign, but the other claimant or his son was to succeed him. This is carried out so that now there are continually alternate dynasties 
so in the mates tribe of togoland in west africa there are two royal families descended from two women which supply a king alternately and the palm forest which belongs to the crown is divided into two parts the reigning king has the right to one part and the representative of the other royal house has a right to the other part among the yorubas in western africa the sovereign chief is always taken from one or more families which have the hereditary right of furnishing the community with rulers in many cases the succession passes regularly from one to its second family alternately but in one instance apparently unique the right of succession to the sovereignty seems to be possessed by four princely families from each of which the head chief is elected in rotation the principle of primogeniture is not necessarily followed in the election but for the choice of the electors must always fall on one who is related to a former chief in the male line for paternal descent alone is recognized in yoruba land where even the greatest chief may take to wife a woman of the lowest rank chiefs and kings in africa are elected from several families in rotation sometimes the choice of the ruling chief is made by divine authority intimated by the people through the high priest or the principal god of the district among the Agaras on the lower niger the royal family is divided into four branches each of which provides a king in turn the capital and its district both which bear the name of ida are always occupied by the reigning branch of the royal family while the three other branches not being allowed to live here retreat into the interior hence at the death of the king a double charge takes place on the one hand the late reigning family with all their dependents have to leave the homes in which many of them have been born and brought up and to migrate to towns in the forest which they know only by name on the other hand the new reigning family come into the capital and the people settle in the houses occupied by their forefathers four reigns ago the king is generally elected by the leading men of his branch or of the royal family they chose the richest and most powerful of their number among the cassius of assam also the succession to the kingdom is partially hereditary and partially elective again among the cassius of assam we meet with the same combination of the hereditary with the elective principle in succession to the kingdom indeed in this people the kinship represents several features of resemblance to the old latin kingship as it appears to have existed at the dawn of history for a Kasi king is a religious as well as a secular head of the state along with the soothsayers he consults the auspices for the public good and sometimes he has priestly duties to perform succession to the kinship always runs in the female line for the Kassis have a regular system of mother kin as opposed to father kin hence it is not the king's sons but his uterine brothers and the sons of his uterine sisters who succeed him on the throne in order of birth but this hereditary principle is controlled by a body of electors who have the right of rejecting unsuitable claimants to the throne generally the electors are a small body composed of the heads of certain priestly clans but in some cases states the number of the electors has been greatly increased by the inclusion of representative headmen of certain important lay clans or even by the inclusion of village headmen or of the chief superintendents of the village markets nay in the langrim state all the adult males regularly vote at the election of a monarch near the royal families divided into two branches a black and a white from either of which apparently the electors are free to choose a king similarly in the noposofo state there are two royal houses a black and a white and the people may select their heir to the throne from either of them 
End of section 14. Section 15 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 18, Part 2. Thus the Roman monarchy may have combined the hereditary with the elective principle. Thus the mere circumstance that all the Roman kings, with the exception of the two Tarquins, appear to have belonged to different families, is not of itself conclusive against the view that hereditary was one of the elements which determined the succession. The number of families from whom the king might be elected may have been large, and even if, as is possible, the electors were free to choose a king without any regard to his birth, the hereditary prince would still be maintained if, as we have seen reason to conjecture, it was essential for the chosen candidate should marry a woman of the royal house, who would generally be either the daughter or the widow of his predecessor. In this way, the apparently disparate principles of unfettered election and strict hereditary would be combined. The marriage of the elected king with the hereditary princess would furnish a link between the two, and as such a system, to put it otherwise, the kings are elective and the queens hereditary. This is just the converse of what happens under a system of male kinship, where the kings are hereditary and the queens elective. The king was probably nominated either by his predecessor or by an interim king. In later times of Rome, it was held that the custom had been for the people to elect the kings and for the senate to ratify the election. But we may suspect, with Mommsen, that this was no more than inference from the mode of electing the consuls. The magistrates who, are the Republic, representing the kings most closely were the dictator and the king of the sacred rites, and neither of these was elected by the people. Both were nominated, the dictator by the council and the king of the sacred rites by the chief pontiff. Accordingly, it seems probable that under the monarchy the king was nominated either by his predecessor or, failing that, by an interim king, Interrex, chosen from the Senate. Now if, as we have been led to think, an essential claim to the throne was constituted by marriage with a princess of the royal house. Nothing could be more natural than that the king should choose his successor, who would commonly be also his son-in-law. If he had several sons-in-law and admitted the designate the ones who had reigned after him, the election would be made by his substitute, the interim king. Personal qualities which commend man for marriage with a princess as accession to the throne. The personal qualities which recommend a man for a royal alliance as accession to the throne will naturally vary accordingly to the popular ideas of the time and the character of the king or his substitute, but it is reasonable to suppose that among them, in early society, physical strength and beauty would hold a prominent place. We have seen that in Ashanti, the husbands or paramours of the princesses must always be men of fine presence, because they are to be the fathers of future kings. Among the Ethiopians in antiquity, as among the Ashantis and many other African tribes to this day, the crown passed in the female line to the son of the king's sister. But if there was no such heir, they chose the handsomest and most valiant man to reign over them. Fat Kings We are told that the Gordioi elected the fattest man to the kingship, nor is this incredible when we remember that in Africa, 
corpulence is still regarded as a great distinction of beauty and that both the chiefs and their wives are sometimes so fat that they can hardly walk thus among the kaffirs chiefs and rich men attain to enormous bulk and the queens fatten themselves on beef and porridge of which they partake freely in the intervals of slumber to be fat is with them a mark of riches and therefore of high rank common folk cannot afford to eat and drink and lounge as much as they would like to long-headed kings and chiefs the Siroquois in antiquity are reported to have bestowed the crown on the tallest man or on the man with the longest head in a literal not the figurative sense of the word they seem to have been a samaritan people to the north the caucasus and are probably the same with the long-headed people described by hippocrates who says that among them the men with the longest heads are esteemed and noblest and that they apply bandages and other instruments to their heads to their children in infancy for the sake of moulding them into the shape which they admired such reports are probably by no means fabulous for among the monbutu or mangbetu of central africa down to this day when the children of chiefs are young string is wound round their heads which are gradually compressed into a shape that will allow the longest head dress a skull thus treated in childhood takes the appearance of an elongated egg heads artificially moulded as a mark of high rank similarly some of the indian tribes in the northwest coast of america artificially mould the heads of their children into the shape of a wedge or a sugar loaf by compressing them between boards some of them regard such heads as a personal beauty others as a mark of high birth for instance the practice among some of the salish seems to have had a definite social as well as aesthetic significance there appear to have been recognized degrees of contortion marking the social status of the individual for example slaves of which the salish kept considerable numbers were prohibited from deforming the heads of their children at all consequently a normal undeformed head was a sign and badge of servitude in the case of the base-born of the tribes the heads of their children were customarily but slightly deformed while the heads of the children born of wealthy or noble persons and particularly those of chiefs were severely and excessively deformed among the Borurus, the best singers are the chiefs among the Borurus of brazil at the present day the title of chieftaincy is neither corpulence nor an egg-shaped head but the possession of a fine musical ear and a rich baritone bass or tenor voice the best singer in fact becomes a chief there is no other way for supreme power but this hence is the education of bororo youth main things to train not their minds but their voices for the best of the tunku choir will certainly be chief in this tribe accordingly there is no such thing as hereditary chieftainship for if the son of a chief has an indifferent ear or a poor voice he will be a commoner to the end of his days when two rival songsters are found in the same village they sing against each other and he who is judged to have acquitted himself best in the musical contest mounts the throne his defeated rival sometimes retires in a half with his admirers and founds a new village once seated in the place of power the melodious singer is not only highly honoured and respected but can exact unconditional obedience from all and he gives his orders like an operatic king or hero in a musical recitavio. he is especially at eventide when the sun has set and the labours of the day are over that he pours out his soul in harmony and that witching hour he takes up his post in front of the men's clubhouse and while his subjects are hushed in attention he bursts into sacred song passing from the lighter themes 
and concluding the oratio by chanting his commands to each other for the next day when addison ridiculed the new fashion of the italian opera in which generals sang the word of command ladies delivered their messages in music and lovers chanted their billet docs he little suspected that among the backwoods of brazil a tribe of savages in all seriousness preserved a custom which he thought absurd even on the stage succession to the throne determined by a race sometimes apparently the right to the hand of the princess and to the throne has been determined by a race the Altinian libyans awarded the kingdom to the fleetest runner among the old prussians candidates for nobility raced on horseback to the king and the one who reached him first was ennobled according to tradition the earliest games at olympia were held at endymion who set his sons to run a race for the kingdom his turn was said to be at the point of the race course for which the runners started greek traditions of princesses whose hands were won in a race the famous story of pelops and hippodamia is perhaps only another version of the legend that the first races at olympia were run for no less a prize than a kingdom for oenomos was king of pisa a town close to olympia and having warned by an oracle that he would die by the hand of the man who married his daughter hippodamia he resolved to keep her a maid so when any one came a wooing her the king made the suitor drive away in a chariot with hippodamia while he himself pursued the pair in another car drawn by fleet horses and overtaking the unlucky white slew him in this way he killed twelve suitors and nailed their heads to his house the ruins of which were shown at olympia down to the second century of our era the bodies of the suitors were buried under a lofty mound and it is said that in former days sacrifices were offered to them yearly when pelops came to win the hand of hippodamia he bribed the charioteer of oenomos not to put the pins into the wheels of the king's chariot so oenomos was thrown from the car and dragged by his horses to death but some say he was dispatched by pelops according to the oracle anyhow he died and pelops made hippodamia and succeeded to the kingdom the grave of oenomos was shown to olympia it was a mound of earth enclosed with stones here two precincts were dedicated to pelops and hippodamia in which sacrifices were offered to the manually the victim presented to pelops was a black ram whose blood was poured into a pit other traditions were current in antiquity of princesses who were offered in marriage to the fleetest runner and won by the victor in the race thus icarus at sparta set the wooers of his daughter penelope to run a race ulysses won and wedded her his father-in-law is said to have tried to induce him to take up his abode in sparta which seems to show that if ulysses had accepted the invitation he would have inherited the kingdom through his wife so too the libyan king antaeus placed his beautiful daughter bars or alcius at the end of the race-course her many notable suitors both libyans and foreigners ran to her as the goal and alcademus who touched her first gained her in marriage Danaeus, also at Argos, is said to have stationed his many daughters at the goal, and the runner who reached them first had first choice of the maidens. Somewhat different from these traditions is the story of Atalante, for in it the wooers are said to have contended, not with each other, but with the coy maiden herself in a foot race. She slew her vanquished suitors and hung up their heads in the race course, till Hippomenes gained the race and her hand by throwing down the golden apples which he stood to pick up custom of racing for a bride among the kirgiz and kalmaks these traditions may very well reflect a real custom of racing for a bride 
with such a custom appears to have prevailed among various peoples, though in practice it is degenerated into a mere form or pretense. Thus there is one race called the love chase, which may be considered a part of the form of marriage among the Kyrgyz. In this the bride, armed with a formidable whip, mounts a fleet horse, and is pursued by all the young men who make any pretensions to her hand. She will be given as a prize to the one who catches her, but she has the right, besides urging on her horse to the utmost, to use her whip, often with no main force, to keep off those lovers who are unwelcome to her, and she will probably favour the one whom she has already chosen in her heart. As, however, by Kyrgyz custom, a suitor to the hand of a maiden is obliged to give a certain kalim, or purchase money, and an agreement must be made with the father for the amount of dowry which he gives his daughter. The love chase is a mere matter of form. Similarly, the ceremony of marriage among the Kalmuks is performed on horseback. A girl is first mounted who rides off in full speed. Her lover pursues, and he, he overtakes her, she becomes his wife and the marriage is consummated on the spot, of which she returns with him to his tent. Custom of racing for a bride among the Kalmuks and some tribes of the Malay Peninsula. But it sometimes happens that the woman does not wish to marry the person by whom she is pursued, in which she will not suffer him to overtake her. And we were assured that no instance occurs of a Kalmuk girl being thus caught unless she has a partiality for her pursuer. If she dislikes him, she rides, to use the language of English sportsmen, neck or nothing, until she has completely escaped, or until the pursuer's horse is tired out, leaving her at liberty to return, to be afterwards chased by some more favoured admirer. The race for the bride is found also among the Kordiaks of northeastern Asia. It takes place in a large tent, round which may separate compartments called bologs, are arranged in a continuous circle. The girl gets a start and is clear of the marriage if she can run through all the compartments without being caught by the bridegroom. The women of the encampment place every obstacle in the man's way, tripping him up, belaboring him with switches and so forth, so that he has little chance of succeeding unless the girl wishes it and waits for him. Among some of the rude indigenous tribes of the Malay Peninsula, Marriage is preceded by a singular ceremony. An old man presents the future couple to the assembled guests, and, followed by their families, he leads them to a great circle round which the girl sets off to run as fast as she can. If the young man succeeds in overtaking her, she becomes his mate. Otherwise, he loses all rights, which happens especially when he is not so fortunate as to please his bride. Another writer tells us that among these savages, when there is a river at hand, the race takes place on the water, the bride paddling away in one canoe and pursued by the bridegroom in another. Kafir Race for Bride Before the wedding procession starts for the bridegroom's hut, a Kafir bride is allowed to make one last bid for freedom, and a young man is told off to catch her. Should he fail to do so, she is theoretically allowed to return to her father, and the whole performance has to be repeated, but the flight of the bride is usually a pretense. The bride race among Teutonic peoples and its traces in modern Europe. Similar customs appear to have been practiced by all the Teutonic peoples, for the German, Anglo-Saxon and North languages possess in common a word for marriage which means simply bride race. 
Moreover, traces of the customs survived into modern times. Thus the mark of Brandenburg, down to the first half of the 19th century at least, it was a practice for bride and bridegroom to run a race on their wedding day in presence of all the guests. Two sturdy men took the bride between them and set off. The bridegroom gave them a start, then followed hotfoot. At the end of the course stood two or three young married women, who took from the bride her maiden's crown and placed it by the matron's cap. If the bridegroom failed to overtake his bride, he was much ridiculed. In other parts of Germany, races are still held in marriage, but the competitors are no longer the bride and bridegroom. Thus in haste, at the wedding of a well-to-do farmer, his friends race on horseback to the house of the bride, and friends similarly race on horseback to the house of the bridegroom. The prize hangs over the gate of the farmyard or the door of the house. It consists of a silken or woolen handkerchief, which the winner winds round his head or fastens to his breast. Victors have also the right to escort the marriage possession. In Upper Bavaria, down at least as some fifty years ago, a regular feature of a rustic wedding used to be what was called the bride race or the key race. It generally took place when the bridal party was proceeding from the church to the alehouse. A course was marked out, and two goals, consisting of heaps of straw, were set up at distances of three and four hundred yards respectively. The strongest and fleetest of the young fellows raced barefoot, clad only in shirt and trousers. He who first reached the further goal received the first prize. This was regularly a key of gilt wood, which the winner fastened to his hat. Often, as in some of the Greek legends, the bride herself was a goal of the race. The writers who record the custom suggest that the race was originally for the key of the bride chamber, and the bridegroom ran with the rest. In Scotland also the guests at a rustic wedding used to ride on horseback for a prize, which sometimes consisted of the bride's cake set up on a pole in front of the bridegroom's house. The race was known as the Bruise. At Widensfield in Carinthia, a festival called the Bride Race is still held every year. It is popularly supposed to commemorate a time when a plague had swept away the whole people except a girl and three young men. These three, it is said, raced with each other in order that the winner might get the maiden to wife, and so repeople the land. The race is now held on horseback. The winner receives a prize, a garland of flowers called the bride wreath, and the man who comes in last gets a wreath of ribbons and pig's bristles. It seems not impossible that this custom is a relic of a fair at which the marriageable maidens of the year were assigned an order of merit to the young men who distinguished themselves by their feats of strength and agility. Assignment of brides to pick young men among the Semnites. A practice of this sort appears to have prevailed among the ancient Semnites. Every year the youths and maidens were tested publicly, and the young man who was adjudged best had first choice of the girls, the second best had the next choice, and so on with the rest. They say, writes Strabo, that the Samnites had a beautiful custom which incites to virtue, for they may not give their daughters in marriage to whom they please, but every year the ten best maidens and the ten best youths are picked out, and the best of the ten maidens is given to the best of the ten youths, and the second to the second, and so on. But if the man who wins one of these prizes should afterwards turn out a knave, they disgrace him and take the girl from him. The nature of the test to which the young men and women were subjected is not mentioned but we may conjecture that it was mainly athletic. Contest for a Bride Other Than Races The contest for a bride may be designed to try the skill, strength and courage of the suitors, as well as their horsemanship and speed of foot. Speaking of King's Country, Ireland, in the latter part of the 18th century, 
Arthur Young says, There is a very ancient custom here for a number of country neighbours among the poor people to fix upon some young woman that ought, as they think, to be married. They also agree upon a young fellow as a proper husband for her. This determined, they send to the fair one's cabin to inform her that on the Sunday following she is to be hoist, that is, carried on men's backs. She must then provide whiskey and cider for a treat, as all will pay her a visit after mass for a hurling match. As soon as she is hoist, the hurling begins, in which the young fellow appointed for her husband has the eyes of all the company fixed on him. If he comes off conqueror, he is certainly married to the girl, but if another is victorious, he as certainly loses her, for she is a prize of the victor. These trials are not always finished in one Sunday. They take sometimes two or three, and the common expression when they are over is that such a girl was gold. Sometimes one barony hurls against another, but a magical girl is always a prize. Contest for a Bride Hurling is a sort of cricket, but instead of throwing the ball in order to knock down a wicket, the aim is to pass it through a bent stick, the end stuck in the ground. In the great Indian epic, the Mahabharata, is related that the hand of the lovely princess Draupadi, or Krishna, daughter of the king of Panchalas, was only to be won by him who could bend a certain mighty bow and shoot five arrows through a revolving wheel so as to hit the target beyond. After many noble wooers had essayed the task in vain, the disguised Arjun was successful and carried off the princess to be the wife of himself and his four brothers. The Indian Savayan Marva this was instanced in the ancient Indian practice of Sveya Marva, in accordance with which a maiden of high rank either chose her husband from among her assembled suitors or was offered as a prize to the conqueror of a trial of skill. The custom was occasionally observed among the Rajputs down to a late time. The Tartar king, Saidu, the cousin and opponent of Kublai Khan, is said to have had a beautiful daughter named Anjaruk or the bright moon, who was so tall and brawny that she outdid all men in her father's realm of feats of strength. She vowed she would never marry till she found a man who could vanquish her in wrestling. Many noble suitors came and tried to fall with her, but she threw them all, and from every one whom she had overcome, she exacted a hundred horses. In this way she collected an immense stud. In the Nibelungenlied, the fair Brunhild, Queen of Iceland, was only to be won by marriage by him who could beat her in three trials of strength, and the unsuccessful wooers forfeited their heads. Many had thus perished, but at the last Gunther, king of the Burgundians, vanquished and married her. It is said that Sithon, king of the Odomanti, Thrace, had a lovely daughter, Pelene, and that many men came a-wooing her not only from Thrace, but from Illyria and the country of the Don. But her father said that he who would wed his daughter must first fight himself and pay with his life the penalty of defeat. Thus he slew many young men. But when he was grown old and his strength had failed, he set two of the wooers, by names Dryas and Cletus, to fight each other for the kingdom and the hand of the princess. The combat was to take place in chariots, but the princess, being in love with Cletus, bribed his rival's charioteer to put no pins in the wheels of his chariot. So Dryas came to the ground, and Cletus slew him and married the king's daughter. The tale agrees closely with that of Pelops and Hippodamia. Both stories probably contain, in a legendary form, reminiscences of a real custom. He besides Sithion and how he danced away his marriage. 
within historical times. Clisthenes, Tarnosion, made public proclamation at the Olympian Games they would give his daughter Agarist in marriage to that suitor who, during a year's trial, should prove himself the best. So many young men who pride themselves on their persons and on their lineage assembled at Sucyon from all parts of the Greek world. The tyrant had a race course and a wrestling school made on purpose for them, and they put them through their paces. Of all the suitors, none pleased him so much as Hippoclides, the handsomest and richest man of Athens, a scion of the old princely house of Cybselus. And when the year was up, and the day had come on which the award was to be made, the tyrant sacrificed a hundred oxen, and entertained the suitors of all the people at Sucyon at a splendid banquet. Dinner being over, the wine went round, and the suitors fell to wrangling as to their accomplishments and their wit. In this feast of reason, the gay Hippoclides outshone himself, and then all until, flushed with triumph and liquor, he jumped on a table, danced to music, and then, as a finishing touch, stood on his head, and saw the air with his legs. This was too much. The tyrant of disgust told him he had danced away his marriage. The annual flight of the king, Regifurium, at Rome, may have been a relic of his contest for the kingdom and for the hand of the princess. Thus it appears that the right to marry a girl, and especially a princess, has often been conferred as a prize in athletic contest. There would be no reason, therefore, for surprise the Roman kings, before bestowing their daughters in marriage, should resort to this ancient node of testing the personal qualities of their future sons-in-law and successors. If my theory is correct, the Roman king and queen personated Jupiter as divine consort. In the character of these divinities went through the annual ceremony of a sacred marriage for the purpose of causing the crops to grow and men and cattle to be fruitful and multiply. Thus they did what in more northern lands we may suppose the king and queen of May are believed to do in days of old. Now we have seen that the right to play the part of the king of May and to wed the queen of May has sometimes been determined by the athletic contest particularly by a race. This may have been a relic of an old marriage custom of the sort we have examined, a custom designed to test the fitness of a candidate for matrimony. Such a test might reasonably apply with peculiar rigour to the king in order to ensure that no personal defect should incapacitate him for the performance of those sacred rites and ceremonies, on which, even more than despatch of his civil and military duties, the safety and prosperity of the community were believed to depend and it would be natural to require of him that from time to time he should submit himself afresh to the same ordeal for the sake of publicly demonstrating that he was still equal to the discharge of his high calling a relic of that test perhaps survived in the ceremony known as the flight of the king regifugrium which continued to be annually observed at rome down to imperial times on the twenty-fourth day of february a sacrifice used to be offered in the comitium and when it was over the king of the sacred rites fled from the forum we may conjecture that the flight of the king was originally a race for an annual kinship, which may have been awarded as a prize to the fleetest runner. At the end of the year, the king might run again for a second term of office, and so on until he was defeated and deposed or perhaps slain. In this way, what had once been a race would tend to assume the character of a flight and pursuit. The king would be given a start. He ran, his competitors ran after him, and if he were overtaken, he had to yield the crown and perhaps his life to the lightest of foot among them. In time, a man of masterful character might succeed in setting himself permanently on the throne and reducing the animal race or flight to the empty form which it seems always to have been within historical times. The rite was sometimes interpreted as a commemoration of the expulsion of the kings from Rome, but this appears to have been a mere afterthought, devised to explain a ceremony of which the old meaning was forgotten. 
it is far more likely that in acting thus the king of the sacred rites was merely caving up an ancient custom which in the regal period had been annually observed by his predecessors the kings for the original intention of the rite may have been must probably always remain more or less a matter of conjecture the present explanation is suggested with a full sense of the difficulty and obscurity in which the subject is involved the theory is confirmed by the evidence that at saturnalia a man used to personate the god saturn and be put to death in that character thus if my theory is correct the yearly flight of the roman king was a relic of a time when the kingship was an annual office awarded along with the hand of a princess to the victorious athlete or gladiator who thereafter figured along with his bride as a god and a goddess at a sacred marriage designed to ensure the fertility of the earth by homeopathic magic now this theory is to a certain extent remarkably confirmed by an ancient account of the saturnalia which was discovered and published some years ago by a learned belgian scholar professor franz Cumont of ghent from that account we learn that down to the beginning of the fourth century of our era that is down nearly to the establishment of christianity by constantine the roman soldiers stationed on the danube were wont to celebrate the saturnalia in a barbarous fashion which must certainly have dated from a very remote antiquity thirty days before the festival they chose by lot from among themselves a young and handsome man who was dressed in royal robes to resemble the god saturn in that character he was allowed to indulge all his passions to the fullest extent but when his brief reign of thirty days was over and the festival of saturn was come he had to cut his own throat on the altar of the god he personated we can hardly doubt that this tragic figure whom a fatal lot doomed to masquerade for a short time as a deity and to die as such a violent death was the true original of the merry monarch or king of the saturnalia as he was called whom a happy lot invested with the playful dignity of master of the winter revels in all probability the grim predecessor of the frolicsome king of the saturnalia belonged to that class of puppets who in some countries have been suffered to reign nominally for a few days each year merely for the sake of discharging a burdensome or fatal obligation which otherwise might have fallen on the real king if that is so we may infer that the part of the god saturn who was commonly spoken of as a king was formerly played at the saturnalia by the roman king himself and a trace of the sacred marriage may perhaps be detected in the license according to the human representatives of saturn a license which if i am right is strictly analogous to the old orgies of may day and other similar festivals saturn the god of seed and the saturnalia a festival of sowing it is to be observed that saturn was the god of the seed and the saturnalia the festival of sowing held in december when the autumn sowing was over and the husbandman gave himself up to a season of jollity after the long labours of summer and autumn on the principles of homeopathic magic nothing could be more natural than that when the last seeds had been committed to the earth the marriage of the powers of vegetation should be simulated by their human representatives for the purpose of sympathetically quickening the seed in short no time could be more suitable for the celebration of the sacred marriage we have seen as a matter of fact that the sowing of the seed has often been accompanied by sexual orgies with the express intention of thereby promoting the growth of the crops at all events the view that the king's flight at rome was a mitigation of an old custom of putting him to death at the end of the year's tenure of office is confirmed by the practice of annually slaying a human representative of the divine king saturn which survived in some parts of the roman empire through not at rome itself down to christian times 
in the latin kings were begotten at the licentious festival of the saturnalia we can understand why their paternity was sometimes uncertain and why they might be of servile parentage this theory would throw light on some dark passages in the legends of roman kingship such as the obscure and humble births of certain kings and their mysterious ends for if the sacred marriage took place at a licentious festival like the saturnalia when slaves were temporarily granted the privileges of freemen it might well be that the paternity of the children begotten at this time including those of the royal family was a matter of uncertainty nay it might be known that the king or queen had offspring by a slave such offspring of a royal father and a slave mother or of a royal mother and a slave father would rank as princes and princesses according as male or female kinship prevailed under a system of male kinship the union of the king with a slave woman would give birth to a servius tullius and according to one tradition to a romulus if female kinship prevailed in the royal family as we have seen reason to suppose it is possible that the stories of the birth of romulus and servius from slave mothers is a later inversion of the facts and that what really happened was that some of the old latin kings were begotten by slave fathers or royal princesses at the festival of saturnalia the disappearance of female kinship would suffice to account for the warping of the tradition all that was distinctly remembered would be that some of the kings had had a slave for one of their parents and people living under a system of paternal descent would naturally conclude that the slave parent of a king could only be the mother since according to the ideas no son of a slave father could be of royal blood and sit on the throne the violent ends of the roman kings again if i am right in supposing that in very early times the old latin kings personated a god and were regularly put to death in that character we can better understand the mysterious or violent ends to which so many of them are said to have come too much stress should not however be laid on such legends for in a turbulent state of society kings like commoners are apt to be knocked on the head for such sounder reasons than a claim to divinity death of romulus on the seventh of july the nonne caprotine at a festival resembling the saturnalia still it is worth while to note that romulus is said to have vanished mysteriously like aeneas or to have been cut to pieces by the patricians whom he had offended and that the seventh of july the day on which he perished was a festival which bore some resemblance to the saturnalia for on that day the female slaves were allowed to take certain remarkable liberties they dressed up as free women in the attire of matrons and maids and in this guise they went forth from the city scoffed and jeered at all whom they met and engaged among themselves in a fight striking and throwing stones at each other moreover they feasted under wild victory made use of a rod cut from the tree for a certain purpose perhaps to beat each other with and offered the milky juice of the tree in sacrifice to juno copratina whose name appears to mean either the goddess of the goat caper or the goddess of the wild fig tree for the romans called a wild fig tree a goat fig caprificus the nonne caprotine seems to have been the festival of the fertilization of the fig hence the day was called the nonne caprotine after the animal or the tree the festival was not peculiar to rome but was held by women throughout latium it can hardly be disassociated from a custom which was observed by ancient husbandmen at the season they sought to fertilize the fig trees or ripen the figs by hanging strings of fruit from a wild fig tree among the boughs 
the practice appears to be very old it has been employed in greece both in ancient and modern times roman writers often refer to it palladius recommends a solstice in june as midsummer day as the best time for the operation columelia prefers july in sicily at the present day the operation performed either on midsummer day the festival of st john the baptist or the early days of july in morocco and north africa generally it takes place on midsummer day the wild fig tree is a male and the cultivated fig tree is a female and the fertilization is effected by insects which are engendered in the fruit of the male tree and convey the pollen to the blossom of the female thus the placing of wild figs laden with pollen and insects among the boughs of the cultivated fig tree is like the artificial fertilization of the date palm a real marriage of the trees and it may well have been regarded as such by the peasants of antiquity long before the true theory of the process was discovered importance of the fig as an article of diet now the fig is an important article of diet in countries bordering on the mediterranean in palestine for example the fruit is not as with us merely an agreeable luxury but is eaten daily and forms indeed one of the stable productions of the country to sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree was a regular jewish expression for the peaceable possession of the holy land and the fable of jotham the fig tree is invited by the other trees next to the olive to come and reign over them when sandanus the lydian attempted to dissuade croesus from marching against the persians he represented to him that there was nothing to be gained by conquering the inhabitants of a barren country an arab commentator on the koran observes that god swears by these two trees the fig and the olive because among fruit trees they surpass all the rest they relate that a basket of figs is offered to the prophet muhammad and when he had eaten one he bade his commerce do the same saying truly if i were to say that any fruit had come down from paradise i would say it of the fig hence it would be natural that a process supposed to be essential to the ripening of so favoured a fruit should be the occasion of a popular festival we may suspect that the license allowed to slave women on this day formed part of an ancient saturnalia at which the loose behaviour of men and women was supposed to secure the fertilisation of the fig trees by homeopathic magic at the festival of the seventh of july women were probably thought to be fertilised by the fig as well as to fertilise it but it is possible and indeed probable that the fertilisation was believed to be mutual in other words it may have been imagined and while the women caused the fig tree to bear fruit the tree in its turn caused them to bear children this conjecture is confirmed by a remarkable african parallel the acucule of british east africa attributed to the wild fig tree the power of fertilising barren women supposed fertilisation of barren women by the wild fig tree among the acucule of british east africa for this purpose they apply the white sap or milk to various parts of the body of the would-be mother then having sacrificed a goat they tie the women to a fig tree with long strips cut from the intestines of the sacrificial animal this seems writes mr c w hobley who reports a custom to be a case of the tree marriage of india i fancy there is an idea of ceremonial marriage with the ancestral spirits which are said to inhabit certain of these fig trees in fact it supports the camber idea of the spiritual husbands the belief in spiritual husbands to which mr hobley here briefly refers is as follows the akamba of british east africa imagine that every married woman is at the same time the wife of a living man and also the wife of the spirit of some departed ancestor Amu. 
they are firmly convinced that the fertility of a wife depends to a great extent on the attentions of her spiritual husband and if she does not conceive within six months after marriage they take it as a sign that her spiritual husband is neglecting her so they offer beer and kill a goat as a propitiatory sacrifice if after the woman still remains barren they make a bigger feast and kill a bullock on the other hand if a wife is found to be with child soon after marriage they are glad and consider it a proof that she has found favour in the eyes of her ghostly husband belief of the okamba that the spirits of the dead live in wild victories further they believe that at death a human spirit quits the bodily frame and takes up its abode in a wild fig tree mumble hence they build miniature huts at the foot of those fig trees which are thought to be haunted by the souls of the dead and they periodically sacrifice these spirits accordingly we may conjecture though we are not told that amongst the akumba as among the akiku a barren woman sometimes resorts to a wild fig tree in order to obtain a child since she believes that her spiritual spouse has his abode in the tree the akukuyu clearly attribute a special power of fertilization to the milky sap of the tree since they apply it to various parts of the women who desire to become a mother perhaps they regard it as the seed of the fig this may explain why the roman slave women offered the milky juice of the tree to juno capratina they may have intended thereby to add to the fecundity of the mother goddess and we can scarcely doubt that the rods which they cut from the wild fig tree for the purpose apparently of beating each other were supposed to communicate the generative virtue of the tree to the women who were struck by them suppose fertilization of women by the wild banana tree among the buganda the buganda of central africa appear to ascribe the wild banana tree the same power of removing barrenness which the akuku attribute to the wild fig tree for when a wife has no child she and her husband will sometimes repair to a wild banana tree and there standing one on each side of the tree partake of the male organs of a goat the man eating the flesh and drinking the soup and the women drinking the soup only this is believed to ensure conception after the husband has gone in to his wife here again as among the akukuyu we see that the fertilizing virtue of the tree is reinforced by the fertilizing virtue of the goat and we can therefore better understand why the romans called the male wild fig tree goat fig and why the messanians dubbed it simply he goat the roman king may have celebrated a sacred marriage on the nanae caprotine as a charm to make the fig trees bear fruit the association of the death of romulus with a festival of the wild fig tree can hardly be accidental especially as he and his twin brother remus were said to have been suckled by the she-wolf under a fig tree the famous ficus romanalis which was shown in the forum as one of the sacred objects of rome and receiving offerings of milk down to late times indeed some have gone so far both in ancient and modern times as to derive the names of romulus and rome itself from this fig tree ficus romanalis if they are right romulus was the fig man and rome the fig town be that as it may the clue to the association of romulus with a fig is probably furnished by the old belief that the king was responsible for the fruits of the earth and the rain from heaven we may conjecture that on this principle the roman king was expected to make fig trees blossom and bear figs and that in order to do so he masqueraded as the god of the fig tree and went through a form of sacred marriage either with his queen or with a slave woman on july day with the husbandmen resorted to more efficacious means of producing the same results the ceremony of the sacred marriage need not have been restricted to a single day in the year 
it may well have been repeated for many different crops and fruits if the queen of athens was annually married to the god of the vine why should not the king of rome have annually wedded the god of the fig the marriage of the divine king or human god often followed by his death but as we have seen romulus the first king of rome is said to have perished on this day of this festival of the fig which if our hypothesis is correct was also the day of his ceremonial marriage to the tree that the real date of his death should have been preserved by tradition is very improbable rather we may suppose that the reason for dating his death and his marriage on the same day were drawn from some ancient ritual in which the two events were actually associated but we have still to ask why should the king's wedding day be also the day of his death the answer must be deferred for the present all we need to say now is that elsewhere the marriage of the divine king or human god has been regularly followed at a brief interval by his violent end for him as for others death often treads on the heels of love violent ends of tedius tullius hostilius and other roman kings another roman king who perished by violence was tullius the sabine colleague of romulus it is said that he was at latvidium offering a public service to the ancestral gods when some men to whom he had given umbrage dispatched him with the sacrificial knives and spits which they had snatched from the altar the occasion and the manner of his death suggests that the slaughterer may have been a sacrifice rather than an assassination again tullius hostilius the ancestor of numa was commonly said to have been killed by lightning but many held that he was murdered at the instigation of ancus marcius who reigned after him speaking of the more or less mythical numa the type of the priestly king plutarch observes that his fame was enhanced by the fortunes of the latter kings for the five who reigned after him the last was deposed and ended his life in exile and of the remaining four not one died a natural death for three of them were assassinated and talus hostilius was consumed by thunderbolts this implies that king angus marcius as well as tarquin the elder and servius tullius perished by the hands of an assassin no other ancient historian so far as i know records this of angus marcius though one of them says that the king was carried off by an untimely death tarquin the elder was slain by two murderers whom the sons of his predecessor ancus marcius had hired to do the deed lastly servius tullius came by his end in circumstances which recall the combat for the priesthood diana at nemi he was attacked by his successor and killed by his orders though not by his hand moreover he lived among the oak groves of the esquiline hill at the head of the slope of verbius and it was here beside a sanctuary of diana that he was slain the succession to the latin kingship may sometimes have been decided by a single combat these legends of the violent ends of the roman kings suggest that the contest by which they gained the throne may sometimes have been a mortal combat rather than a race if that were so the analogy which we have traced between rome and emi would still be closer at both places the sacred kings the living representatives of the godhead would thus be liable to suffer deposition and death at the hand of any resolute man who could prove his divine right to the holy office by the strong arm and the sharp sword it would not be surprising if among the early latins the claim to the kingdom should often have been settled by single combat for down to historical times the umbrians regularly submitted their private disputes to the ordeal of battle and he who cut his adversary's throat was thought thereby to have proved the justice of his cause beyond the reach of cavail 
Anyone who remembers how, in the forest of Westphalia, the femme gericht set the modern civil law at defiance down into the eighteenth century, and how in the mountains of Corsica and Sardinia, blood revenge has persisted and persists to our own days, will not wonder that hardly a century after the union of Italy, the Roman legislation had not yet succeeded in putting down the last relics of this ancient Italian or other Indo-European mode of doing justice in the nests of the Apennines. Combats for the Kingdom in Africa A parallel to what I conceive to have been the rule of the old Latin kingship is furnished by a West African custom of today. When the Maluango, or King of Lango, who is deemed the representative of God on earth, has been elected, he has to take his stand at Nakumbi, a large tree near the entrance to his sacred ground. Here, encouraged by one of his ministers, he must fight all rivals who present themselves to dispute his right to the throne. This is one of the many instances in which the rites and legends of ancient Italy are illustrated by the practice of modern Africa. Similarly, among the Banyoro of Central Africa, whose king had to take his life with his own hand whenever his health and strength began to fail, the succession to the throne was determined by a mortal combat among the clans, who fought till only one of them was left alive. Even in England, a relic of a similar custom survived till lately in the coronation ceremony, at which a champion used to throw down his glove and challenge to mortal combat all who disputed the king's right to the crown. The ceremony was witnessed by Pepys at the coronation of Charles II. In Greece and Italy, kings probably personated Cronus and Saturn, the god of the seed, before they personated Zeus and Jupiter, the god of the oak. In the foregoing inquiry, we have found reason to suppose that the Roman kings personated not only Jupiter, the god of the oak, but Saturn, the god of the seed, and perhaps also the god of the victory. The question naturally arises, did they do so simultaneously or successively? In other words, did the same king regularly represent the oak god at one season of the year, the seed god at another, and the fig god at a third? Or were there separate dynasties of oak kings, seed kings, and fig kings, who belonged perhaps to different stocks and reigned at different times? The evidence does not allow us to answer these questions definitely, but tradition certainly points to the conclusion that in Latium, and perhaps in Italy generally, the seed god Saturn was an older deity than the oak god Jupiter, just as in Greece, Cronus appears to precede Zeus. Perhaps Saturn and Cronus were the gods of an old indigenous and agricultural people, while Jupiter and Zeus were the divinities of a ruder invading race, which swarmed down into Italy and Greece from the forests of Central Europe, bringing their wild woodland deities to dwell in more fertile lands, under softer skies, side by side with the gods of the corn and the vine the olive and the fig. If that were so, we may suppose that before the eruption of these modern barbarians, the old kings of Greece and Italy personated the gods of the fat field and fruitful orchard, and that it was not till after the conquest that their successors learned to pose as the god of the vernon oak and the thundering sky. However, on questions so obscure, we must be content to suspend our judgment. It is unlikely that the student's searchlight will ever pierce the mists that hang over these remote ages. All that we can do is to follow the lines of evidence backward as far as they can be traced, till after growing fainter and fainter they are lost, altogether in the darkness. End of chapter 18, part 2, and end of section 15.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.